Today, I'm speaking with my friend Molly Heron. She's a master's student in anthropology at the University of Wyoming and the assistant collections manager for the University of Wyoming's archaeological repository, which, by the way, is the only federally recognized repository in the state of Wyoming. She's interested in Paleo-Indian archaeology, the interactions between humans and megafauna, and Paleo-Indian use of ivory in Ice Age North America. My name's Sebastian Weatherby, and without further ado, this is The Tell. Yeah, hi Molly. <laughs> hey Sebastian. <laughs> Why paleo in particular? Why Pleistocene archaeology? As a focus for myself? Yeah. Or? Well, it, it's going to be a long... <laughs> drawn out story here, but I um, came into college doing pre-med with yeah. the, after assisting with autopsies and taking a lot of anatomy courses in the junior college while I was finishing high school and just thinking, this is what I want to do. I love human bodies. I love just medi- medicine in general, which sounds creepy, I know, but <laughs> um, so I started my course load in college and it was really intense and my chemistry professor did not speak English very well and I was sitting there for like day three of class going there's no way in hell I'm gonna pass this so yeah I dropped that within the drop period and picked up bioanthropology because I was so one of the autopsy techs I was assisting with a lot he had a BA in anthropology so I was like well it's not the worst idea mm-hmm. so just listening to how bioanthropology worked and especially bioarchaeology, I was just blown away by basically everything you can learn. I've always had a passion for history and frankly, I'm not super great with people. So medicine probably wouldn't have been the best option. Archaeology is definitely a good profession for the socially challenged. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You only have to work with a few people and you're, you know, just covered in dirt all day. Um, I was planning on doing bioarch and then I was doing my under, undergrad here, and eventually Maddie came up to me and was like, hey, you like bones? And I was like, damn right I do, <laughs> with really weird finger guns. And then yeah. she eventually just was like, okay, well, I have a project I think you might be interested in, and that was looking at ivory possible ivory fragments at Laprell because... Sorry, just to interject, uh, for those who don't know, which will be most of our audience, uh, Maddie is Madeline Mackey. She's a former PhD student at the University of Wyoming, and she's also a, a professor of anthropology at Weber State University now. But anyway, sorry, go ahead. But yeah, so someone who was picking ma- matrix from this Laprell site, so this is the Laprell Mammoth Kill site around Douglas, Wyoming, um, and has an associated camp with it. So it's, it's pretty pivotal as far as Paleo-Indian sites go, and especially Mammoth Kill scavenge localities. Um, so she was wondering, she and Todd were wondering if there was any way I could identify um, ivory through a microscope. And I'd previously done a couple different microscopic projects looking at cut mark analysis, um, looking at hide and fur from perishables, um, non-destructively identifying animals that came from there. Yeah. Um, so I just started reading up a whole lot on trying to identify ivory. Most of it came... All my sources came from uh, customs officials trying to 
make sure the ivory was not oh, okay. being yeah, transported yeah. into the states or into other countries. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that really helped me realize that there's a gap in the literature, really, of trying to yeah. identify microscopic ivory at sites. And, I mean, it, it, it's interesting to me because tiny little fragments of ivory don't occur natu- naturally. So Right, a tusk isn't just going to no. break itself up and scatter itself across. I mean, so if you have like a ton of, of colluvium or, you know, rockfall mm-hmm. from a site, it, it's obviously going to break the tusk, but not to the tiny Yeah, it's not going to be smashed into little sub-centimeter chips. fragments yeah. that we're seeing at Lapel. Yeah. Identifying little pieces of ivory from a site, is it mostly to confirm that there is harvesting of the ivory going on or is there something kind of more detailed than that in terms of like how it scatters across the site or something or where you're finding it in particular i mean both um Um, so it's it's important to see if tusks are being utilized at all because for you know decades the basic assumption of mammoth kill scavenge localities is that they're just taking mammoths for subsistence use so they're just they're butchering them right they're potentially gourmet butchering so not using a whole lot of the animal and then they're moving on because they're clovis people and you know they're running for their lives to south america or whatever yeah (laughs) um seeing that there are tiny fragments of ivory around any mammoth site in my opinion shows hey these animals were not just subsistence and were also valued for other resources. But also the distribution around the site is important. So if we're seeing distribution of fragments, especially away from the initial butchery site, we know know then that people are transporting these tusk fragments. And then also if we're seeing them around hearths, then you can start arguing for um, working, you know, in a communal fashion around hearths like you would with lithics or pretty much any other resource. That to me shows that people are obviously processing this material, and mm-hmm. it's, it's not just subsistence-based. At Laprella, you found concentrations of ivory fragments in association with red ochre, right? Is the ochre possibly being used to work the ivory in some way? I mean, I know ochre is an abrader sometimes. Yes, um, and so... For polishing? Yep, so, so jewelers still use ochre today, and it's called jeweler's polish, but it's just basically in, in one solid chunk of ochre you can use it, has a very fine sandpaper. So I, I, I personally think that a lot of the ivory chunks were probably being polished in that manner. Also, um, aside from its aesthetic value, is ivory very useful in tool making? Is it it's extremely easy useful. to work? It's extremely difficult to work. So extremely useful and uh-huh. also extremely difficult to work. Um, we see in the in the Paleolithic, we're, we're seeing Europe, sorry, um, tons of ivory being used for atlatls, atlatl weights. Atlatls are interesting because, so if you've read Bridget Grun's paper on the egalitarian factor of atlatl use, mm-hmm. well, women and children can be just as effective using atlatls than males can be. So yeah. that, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, and we, st- we start seeing a shift in the Holocene from, I would say, more communal-based hunting using atlatls and darts and spears to more individually based hunting with the bow and arrow. Something I've heard you talk about before um, is kind of a gap between the Eurasian use of ivory and the North American use. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not just whether people were using ivory at all, right? It's It, it kind of is, though. Um, 
So first of all, there there is a huge gap between if we're comparing the European record of ivory with the I guess North American record of ivory artifacts, objects, what what have you, waste material within the New World. Um, first, think about like consider the big time gap. So in North America, people were, people were hunting mammoths or around mammoths for only. 2,000 years, maybe, depending on who you ask. It might go a little bit further, but mm-hmm. if you look at the Europe, then we're looking at just thousands and thousands of years of right. coexistence yeah. of multiple proboscidean species. So there's a lot more time depth within yeah. the relationship between people and proboscideans in the old world. But um, and that's why you see figurines, especially. So we're seeing like the lion man, yeah. which is awesome. And yeah. little tiny mammoth figures, horse figures, all of these are made of ivory. So going back to the question of, is ivory useful? It's definitely useful. It's a very durable material. Um, it's like if you were to make like, let's say a leather abrader, and that's often what those like ivory rods mm-hmm. That you'll see, I am. I, I think they are leather braiders, and because people still use ribs and bone to work leather today. So I mean, so a lot of people think ivory rods could be for shafts. They might be, mm-hmm. but I mean, they might have had multiple purposes. Yeah. But let's say you were to make an ivory rod. Well, that rod would last you. Would then last into your son. You know, if you passed it down, potentially even to his son. One of the so we have a big chunk of ivory that we see at Hellgap, and that's the what people are considering as an heirloom artifact, because Hellgap is definitely not Clovis. We're seeing ivory being passed down for multiple right. multiple generations, but just the time it takes to carve and work ivory, where like the cost alone, like energy costs, not necessarily monetary yeah, or but whatever. The effort. The effort. Expend. You would, I mean, you'd have to be really well situated, have enough food and water, and be, be secure enough in your whatever you're living to have the time to carve a lion man statue. Right. To you know, even have the time to carve an ivory bead. Estimates on ivory bead working, like a bead that's about two centimeters large, would take about three to eight hours to. No. Work. Jeez. So okay. I mean that, that. So because people are more mobile in North America, yeah, they just don't have the time or energy to invest in it. Basically, um, um, it, by the time like the late Paleolithic comes about in Europe, we're seeing like seasonal movements of people, mm-hmm. and they're revisiting cave sites, and you, you know about cave sites a lot. So, what this is really making me think of is a, a chapter or, or paper I forget which called "The Roots of Inequality" by Barbara Bender, where she connected the explosion in, in parietal rock and cave art in the Upper Paleolithic to groups tied to the seasonal use of the landscape following game animals, uh, returning to the same cave site over generations, probably. Yeah, coming back and following herds of caribou and maybe mammoth and other ungulates and prey animals and then just doing full rounds. And so... Ethnographically, this is consistent, but in the winter, you're probably going to have a lot of time to, you know, <laughs> play around with yeah, yeah. resources, making different things out of different raw materials, and eventually you might choose to make something as awesome as a lion man. And, and 
there aren't really any North American linemen or, you know, the equivalent of Venus figurines or things like that. Yeah, as far as making of tools and figurines in the New World, we're just really not seeing a whole lot of it. Um, we have some ivory rods. We have a shaft wrench or, um, at Murray Springs made of ivory. And then we have just a ton of what I consider waste materials. So yeah. little fragments of ivory. Is part of that just taphonomic bias because people lived in Pleistocene Europe for tens of thousands of years versus thousands for the Americas? So, you know, there being just less time and fewer chances for artifacts like that to be deposited? For sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I definitely think so. And also when we're considering a colonizing population, if we are considering Clovis to be a colonizing population. Definitely a, <laughs> definitely a contentious if. I mean, you're not going to have to make many identity, like, figures or things that will show your group's identity. Right. Territoriality isn't going to be yeah. a huge factor if you've got an empty continent. Basically, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, like, even if you do run into other people, it's you're not going to have to show all of your amazing ivory bracelets and <laughs> necklaces and atlatls. Another big factor, length of occupation, just talking within like the realm of a human lifespan in the Paleolithic, again, the seasonal rounds that we're seeing, um, ivory needs to be dried. Ideally, like ivory is worked better when it's dried and uh -huh. not fresh. So especially the use of cave sites, we're probably seeing storing of Right, like tusks. they cache it and then they come back like mm -hmm. the next season or something. Yeah. How long does it take to dry? So if, if it was kept in a dry rock shelter cave, maybe wrapped in hide, you might see maybe two years it would be good so yeah you definitely need to be able to revisit where you've cached them <laughs> do we do we have a good understanding of whether there's much a difference between the way that people hunted mammoth in europe versus in north america maybe in terms of i don't know the the age of the mammoth that they're hunting or the methods that they're using to get the kill that kind of thing um, that's, that's a hard one um <laughs> it, it's difficult because if you think of um like North American archaeology, yeah. focus has always been on the initial colonization of the continent. Mm -hmm. So everyone is so keen on finding these megafauna kill sites. That being said, the, the same focus, the same desire to find kill sites is not shared across the pond, yeah. as it were. Now we're seeing tons of Gravettian points are yeah. made of mammoth ribs. The most common projectile point is made of mammoth ribs. We're seeing sites like Yana, Meserich, others, and like houses and structures are right, being yeah, made out of yeah. mammoth bones. We're seeing a lot of ivory use. But all of this being said, that doesn't necessarily mean they were killing right. mammoths. And they only yeah. true... scavenging as well. Yeah, it. so scavenging was huge. Um, the only true record that we're seeing that shows any kind of actual subsistence use is um, isotopic. There was one paper that Todd went to this conference, and unfortunately yeah. this paper is in like Czech or something, so I'm waiting for it to be... This is both of our advisors, by the way, uh, Todd Serville. Yeah. Waiting for this paper to be published in English, but um, about 40% of some individual's diet that they've isotopically analyzed was made up of mammoths. So 
I mean, that that being said, the two individuals they analyzed were related, so maybe just one band that's right, like super yeah. into eating <laughs> mammoths. But now, and once you move over to the New World and to North America, most mammoth kill scavenged localities are only a single animal. Um, or, Although you're working on one that yes. may be an exception. So I know you're working right now on a project revisiting a site that was previously excavated by uh, Dr. George Frizen called the Colby Mammoth Site. And this is a spot where humans piled something around 500 mammoth bones into two big piles. And so, to my understanding, the thing you're trying to get at is did people kill all of those mammoths at once, which would be a really dramatic scene. So we're, we're sure. talking about seven um, to potentially eight mammoths. Um, we know that there's that seven. That seems like, like a long day taking out seven or eight mammoths in one go. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's option one. And then option two would be maybe people are returning to the same area, either seasonally or even like across generations, doing the same hunt in the same place and caching the meat yeah, in the so same location. The Colby site, the original excavators, um, Dr. George Frizen, which if any of you are interested in paleo-Indian archaeology will recognize the name um he dug this site in the 70s and his original determination or hypotheses around the site um, indicate that it was separate procurement events due to the differing weathering patterns on the bones but you know the, the site's also now a reservoir and a lot of it's underwater so right lots of taphonomic issues there but yeah, I mean, if they, if people were choosing to mass kill mammoths, holy, holy shit, um, that's a, that's a huge undertaking. Um, the only way I think you could do it in the Colby site. So, um, Colby site is around Worland, Wyoming, and it's kind of in a sand draw, and so not the classic Arroyo site, but similar. Um, now, if it was, if that draw was filled with snow during like the winter in the Pleistocene, chances are you might be able to herd a herd of mammoths into that and then dispatch them, but it's still going to be quite, quite an undertaking. And yeah. I don't really see the reason why, because just think about the, the meat that one mammoth would provide. Why, why would you? Right. There'd be, there'd be too much meat. Even if you had 50 people there, you'd have, you'd have mammoth rotting on the carcass. There'd just be no way to get to process seven or eight mammoths. And so uh, what you're doing to get at this question is you're conducting a serial bulk isotopic sampling of tooth enamel from these mammoths. And the reason for doing that is from those results, you'll be able to tell whether they had the same diet or not. And yeah. if they did, then they were part of the same herd and probably died together. Whereas yes. if not, then... I mean, they, I guess they could have still been part of the same lineage, yeah. but... Um, but not necessarily the not same Not necessarily, year. yeah, killed at the same time. Yeah, so the oxygen isotopes look at water. Um, so that would tell us, based on the atmospheric meteoric content within the water sources that these animals are ingesting, if all these animals, like, if it was one matriarchal herd that was killed at one time. Right. Um, same, similarly, the carbon... Isotopes tell us like uh, C3 versus C4 plant, um, and then that can help us with seasonality of when these animals died. Um, so if they're you know eating a lot of C4 plants, it's yeah. probably not going to be winter um, occupation. So 
Um, we're also doing some radiocarbon sampling on every mandible that we sample. Right, so you can also test that way for contemporaneity. So we're, we're basing this, this off of a study that Metcalf et al. did looking at a lot of the Arizona mammoth kill scavenge localities, and they did not radiocarbon date a lot of theirs. Um, but, I mean, it's not as important because they're looking at multiple sites, but, but still, right. um, I think that was a thing that they missed. So hopefully that the combination will tell us something. It seems to me like whether... Uh, Taking that as an, as an assumption, either a pre-Clovis model or a Clovis first model. And it seems like your project with the Colby mammoth site is a great uh, little vignette to think about this with. Um, my assumption would be that if Clovis people were the first to arrive on the continent and immediately started hunting and extirpating all of the proboscideans, then that suggests that they're doing it because it pays to do it. It's a really useful resource, and it's something that they want. And they're doing it for subsistence purposes, at least primarily. And, 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 and perhaps there's some prey naivete going on, so they, they can kill mammoth really easily, so they're having a field day. To me, that story fits especially well with the idea of a mass kill at the Colby Mammoth site, that all of these mammoth were killed at the same time. Although, obviously, the overkill hypothesis doesn't require that this be a mass kill. On the other hand, the idea of people starting becoming mammoth hunters when prior to that they weren't, to me suggests that it's being done for some reason other than utility, that there's some symbolic significance to the activity. Maybe it involves... Uh, you know, feasting or some kind of social organization, some, some, uh, this is the, the kind of thing that can only really be speculated on. Um, there's a professor emeritus, uh, named Mark Sutton, who, uh, recently published a paper called Envisioning a Western Clovis Ritual Complex, which, uh, kind of spitballs a lot of this sort of thing. But anyways, I like the way that story would synergize with, uh, finding that this was a recurrent hunt, people returning to the mm-hmm. same location, and just gathering together. The, yeah, the organization, the tradition of it carried out yeah. over decades or longer. No, I think um, you definitely have it. And I know, so North American archaeology, this has always been a huge powder keg debate of Clovis versus pre-Clovis. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really think it needs to be that fixated on. But so the Clovis period, it's, it's a very short period. We're We're talking like 13... 70 to 12 5 and that's that's a that's a very short time to have 16 mammoth kill sites and to just assume that people came from alaska all the way down to south america within that time period um also mm-hmm. I, I have no yeah. I, I agree with you i have no like I, I would not understand why they would choose to exploit proboscideans because they're just that's just a lot of work i mean we're, we're you're entering into an uncharted continent with no other humans, like with very naive prey, and you, you pretty much will not have to target the like the largest thing out there because your right. group's not yeah. going to be huge. Yeah, why risk getting trampled to death? And for this reason, I, I usually think about big game hunting in terms of additional motivating factors like costly signaling theory or food sharing and alliance building, something other than uh, 
a pure caloric motivation, especially when the animal is so big and so dangerous. I mean, I would definitely like <laughs> rather like chase that hare or yeah. you know kill a deer yeah. or go that, a caribou. That all musk sounds much easier. are really stupid <laughs> and they're easy to kill. So I mean, you could easily kill a muskox at this time. Um, we don't see that, but I mean, it would it would be easy. But no, I I think you're right. And also, if these um, mammoths were all killed at separate times, or some of them were killed at separate times, um, because it doesn't necessarily have to be one or the other. It could have mm-hmm. been like two were killed, and then two were killed, and then one was killed, or so on and so forth. Then you are seeing knowledge of the landscape to return to the same locations. And it might also suggest a similar like seasonal round application that we're seeing in the Paleolithic, which would match much better with than using ivory. What I wanted to ask about, actually, I know you think a lot about how gender plays into the way that people see proboscideans. Mm -hmm. And I don't know anything about that, except what I heard you rant about one (laughs) evening like uh, in Alaska while I was kind of punch drunk after a day of digging. (laughs) Yeah. um, So this is, this is my own like little passion project. And if I were ever to publish a paper on it, it would, it would basically have the same acknowledgements as that Sutton paper had. There's like, no one else agrees with this, but here it is. Essentially going back to the Paleolithic Europe, we're we're looking at by about 40,000 years ago, we just see a massive increase in art. And when people talk about the Upper Paleolithic Revolution, they're not making the claim that there was no art prior. Um, There's plenty of examples. Uh, The incised ochre at Blombo's Cave leaps to mind. But there is definitely an explosion in the physical evidence of creative expression. Rock and cave art, jewelry, sculpture. A clear change from before, for sure. Yeah, that was probably more... um... I don't know, verbal art, dance art, body painting, so on and so forth. By about 40,000 years ago in the Upper Paleolithic, we are seeing just a high frequency of cave art. And also that's when we start seeing all that worked ivory, um, especially like the little lion man figures and so on and so forth. So if you're living hand to mouth out in the landscape, you're going to start anthropomorphizing all of the animals that you are seeing. Your whole symbolic landscape would be structured around that if it's the center of your life way. Yeah. Yeah. Probosidians have interesting parallels to humans. One of the big ones and uh, is that females, probosidians, have breasts on their chests, yeah. not you know down on, towards the hips, which most other animals have. Um, so in a lot of Paleolithic cave art, we're seeing mammoths drawn with very large breasts. Um, we also know that proboscideans follow a matriarchal herd, and many people believe that Paleolithic societies were also very matriarchal. Additionally, the ivory objects that we're seeing, it's interesting because we, we see a lot of ivory use, but the atlatl weights that we're seeing, even though they're carved of ivory, they aren't depicting mammoths. So they're depicting like stags, uh-huh. rhinos, so on and so forth. Um, if you look at the cave art, the stags, the rhinos um, often have large phalluses drawn, so are pretty clearly male symbols. Mm-hmm. But the, there are quite a few cases of, well, probably like six that I know of. For Paleolithic standards, that's <laughs> yeah. quite a few, I would say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, of atlatl weights of mammoths, like l- depicting little mammoths. Yeah. And 
I wouldn't be surprised in the least if those were atlatls belonged to females. And I, I often think that uh, mammoths e- would would have equaled more feminine for a Paleolithic people. Um, and they're, you know, they're very good ma- mothers. Proboscideans are extremely passionate mothers. They're very um, caring. The whole herd kind of raises the offspring. It's hard to get very concrete with it in terms of evidence, but it's a cool, it's a cool thought to imagine upper Paleolithic societies structuring themselves kind of in analogy to a, mm-hmm. a proboscidean herd. A yeah, I mean, and they're super long-lived too, proboscideans are. So again, there's just so many parallels that I think people, especially early people, would have been like, hey, those are like us. And, yeah. and that also might be a taboo that would have then formed a taboo of hunting them. And so maybe that's why we're not seeing, you know, technically kill scavenge mm-hmm. localities in the Paleolithic. Um, also... If we pop over to the ethnographic record in the Arctic, we see Inuit hunters. It's typically male hunters um, will bring down walruses, but then as soon as the walrus is dead, it is then the role of the women, the wives, so on and so forth, Mm -hmm. to divvy up the meat and then especially divvy up the ivory, those tusks. So then if we (laughs) couple those two and then apply it to the new world, um, looking at proboscidean sites, I wouldn't be surprised if the reason we're not seeing a lot of ivory utilization is maybe women... So if there's a taboo for men to touch ivory, Mm -hmm. then if men came upon a mammoth and killed it, but they weren't traveling all together with... Then they wouldn't Right, it just goes to waste at that point. Yeah, they would not have touched it, because it was like, well, you know, I don't... Like, if you killed a mammoth, like, pages and rounds... Right, I can't... can't, What can I do about it? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But if... Yeah. Like, let's say, like, at the Laprell site, if you're camping there, if you have your whole group camping with you, then you have your women. Your women can start right. <laughs> making some badass ivory objects. So, I mean, again, very hard to substantiate. And it's probably something I have to publish after I'm an emeritus or something. But <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a team on the debate over whether paleo-Indian people were big game specialists? I'm pretty sure they're more broad spectrum foragers. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I just I can't imagine any group of people just ignoring basically any other resource that's not a mega like not megafauna. Like mm-hmm. it just it really makes no sense. It's not rational. And I mean, yeah. as anthropologists, we're taught that humans are rational actors. I mean, yeah, of, of, of course, culture then fucks that up with taboos and whatnot but as a general rule we're, we're supposed to act rationally which is why I have the same you know opinion of like I don't think there was a whole lot I know this now sounds opposite to what I just talked about with the female ma- mammoth situation but I really don't think there was a whole lot of gendering like of behaviors within early societies because right i mean there's a lot of ethnographic evidence to support that yeah that among hunter-gatherer communities that begin to settle down and start farming you see a very quick gendering of what were previously uh things went from being very unbounded to being very bounded yeah and i mean that that being said there's still definitely like quote-unquote cultural rules that mm-hmm. you know typically women would do this male you know men would do that but if I'm out picking berries and I see, I don't know, a deer or something, and I have a bow and arrow on me, I'm not going to just be like, well, nope, can't get that, not a man. Yeah. <laughs> and, and vice versa, if you're hunting and you come across like a, 
I don't know, an awesome bunch of roots, you're yeah, probably going to... Yeah, berry patch. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're going to stop and collect that. And that, yeah. that's just, like, optimal foraging theory, really, yeah, yeah. essentially. So. Yeah, they won't follow the rules to the point of starving themselves. <laughs> and, I mean, yeah, based, again, rational actors. We're not going to... You're not going to colonize a continent and be like, well, shit, I can only get these giant animals, so now I have to wait until I see one and, you know, organize my hunting party and yeah. while, like, a massive herd of elk is watch- walking by. So, uh, yeah. But, I mean, also the the same principle goes of why wouldn't you target a giant package of meat if you have the time, the organization, and, I don't know, the leeway to do so. Yeah. And I mean, that again ties back into the probably pre Clovis, people were more comfortable with their landscape. So if you know, if you already know of a really good camping location that that herd of mammoths are, you know, starting to head towards, mm-hmm. you can probably send people there early and then plan the whole thing. But if you don't, then you're, you're not going to take that risk. Yeah. That seems like it would make all the difference in a hunt is whether you're tossing spears at a mammoth that's stuck in a sinkhole or broken its limbs after mm-hmm. tumbling down an arroyo or something as opposed to just running up to a healthy mammoth in a field and <laughs> trying your best yes. and that's another thing about mammoths so you keep hearing me say mammoth kills scavenge localities which i know is a mouthful but that's that's like the accepted term because mm-hmm. i don't know there, there's so much i don't know bad blood within these arguments of well it's not it's not killing it's just scavenging or it's not hunt you know hunting it's just this so I mean, they just kind of abbreviate as mammoth kill scavenge localities. So it yeah. makes everyone happy. Similarly, we see throughout like the the 16 accepted sites, most of them are coupled around arroyos or draws or a water source that, you know, people likely could have like herded them in and mm-hmm. then targeted them because you're right. Like you're not just going to run up on the plains and hope for the best. <laughs> that seems like a bad idea. Yeah. yeah. And the, do you know the escapule mammoth in Arizona? No. So Murray Springs is a site in Arizona that's pretty awesome because there's just tons of megafauna. We're seeing at least 20 mammoths, bison antiquus, you know, horse, other camel, other Pleistocene megafauna, and a massive campsite. So that's it's kind of a very unique site when once you get down to it. But the escapule um, mammoth is about three kilometers away from that and it was found with i think six clovis projectile points Mm -hmm. but there's no evidence that it was like cut or killed or like or you know like yeah yeah. butchered at all so many people think that it escaped from this mass kill that occurred at murray springs oh that's cool so it still had all the points embedded in it yeah but it just ran later Later, presumably, died from its wounds or yep. something, and then yeah. But no people ever leaves got the to points it, behind. Yeah. Yep. yeah, no one found the body. Yep, that's cool. That's really cool. So I mean, it's not saying that you know Clovis people were the best mammoth hunters out there. Like <laughs> they definitely made mistakes. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you've read much about prey naivete or mm-hmm. uh, a bit. Have like have it. an opinion on how likely you think that is? Whether. Um, that's a very believable thing to imagine. So there's there's modern examples of it um, within, I guess, modern being you know the 19th century um, of 
coming to islands and with animals not ever seeing humans before and then yeah. people being able to just basically walk up and like you know club a boar over the head because it doesn't know what the hell this weird biped is right <laughs> doing um but typically and then also we see this in more recently within the reintroduction of wolves in yellowstone mm-hmm. with elk so um t- it took elk two generations to reestablish the fear of wolves so i mean that that's a you've got a short window <laughs> short window yeah so it's a, it's not going to many people have argued with this um, overkill hypothesis that mammoths and proboscideans in the New World were super naive, and that's why... People could just have a field day because they were helpless and they didn't know any better, and so Mm -hmm. we could waltz around killing as many as we wanted. And And then there's also this concept of quote-unquote gourmet butchering, which is basically just taking the best cuts of meat and then moving on, because you know you can get another mammoth within... But, you know, there's not... Uh, the the record does not match that hypothesis, right? There's only we only accept sixteen kill sites. So I mean, unless they this just occurred sixteen times, then I mean, I guess it's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although to be fair, there have been uh, some good arguments about how sixteen mammoth kill sites is actually more than we ought to expect, given the number of kill sites we find in other parts of the world versus the length of overlap between humans and proboscideans before their extinction. And there's also the point about the general uh, correlation between human expansion into different areas of the world and the subsequent extinction of megafauna. And with uh, no global climatic event that can explain all of those extinctions on each continent. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the overkill hypothesis, it's not that it doesn't have its merit. I just don't know if it's exclusively that. Right. It seems to me like a big part of it is well, for my own view on overkill, it depends a lot on how um, how dramatic a version of overkill we're talking. Mm-hmm. If we're talking like 300 years of overlap, total blitzkrieg, yeah. these poor, naive mammoth are just getting wiped out wholesale. Right, for the sake of just like, you know, sheets of fat on the back, or a, yeah. and that's it, throw everything else out. So if that's the vision of overkill that we're we're talking about then i would say i'm a little skeptical but i mean there's a lot of ways people can impact an ecosystem without being directly responsible for for stabbing everything and like guthrie wrote a paper on this talking about the like case of disease that human humans you know we're we're like plague rats wherever we go so yeah (laughs) we're we're going to bring disease with them the dogs that we bring with us are going to have disease naive prey for me, does not just mean killing, you know, using projectiles, but also killing through, like, bio-warfare. Right, yeah, yeah. Because immune um, systems are also going to be naive. And then there's also all the, the trophic cascades mm-hmm. that um, yes. that happen. You kill, you kill an important prey animal, or you just introduce a new apex predator into an ecosystem, one that can practice controlled burns and outcompete native carnivores. But anyways... While, I, while we could probably talk about overkill and other theories about megafaunal extinction forever uh, and go down a rabbit hole, I think we should probably start to wrap things up. Uh, and so as a final question, do you have any archaeological sites in particular that you would like to recommend people read about if they want to know more about this sort of thing? I'm going to... So of course everyone wants to like go to the original 
few, right? Mm -hmm. But I, if you're really interested in, in mammoth kill scavenge localities, I would I would definitely suggest going with the more modern sites because methods are matching more closely with what we've discussed today and right and so on and so forth we're not doing just like the basic a better demonstration of how archaeology yeah. ought to be so um definitely check out laprell um the a synthesis has recently come out um and then colby will be coming out we have to re we're doing Col the colby site revisited um the last publication on that one came out in 86 so it's it's time um but yeah, I guess wait on that. Murray Springs has had a recent synthesis published. Also, if you're interested in maybe pre-Columbus, check out the Cooper's Ferry site because that, that one's the only site that I truly am, I agree with as far as like the pre-Columbus full argument goes. Sweet, <laughs> duly noted. I'm surprised you didn't. I was. I had money. On you saying the Yana Rhino Horn site. Oh well, sorry. I thought you meant just the. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> but yeah, definitely check out Yana. The, um, that one's a really cool Siberian site. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Sweet. Well, thanks, Molly. Well, thanks, Sebastian. <laughs> that was awesome. Sorry for the rants. No, no, that, that's what I want. <laughs> that is, after all, the the whole point of this podcast is for archaeologists to rant at me so I get an excuse to listen to them. And speaking of listening, thank you for listening to this episode of The Tell. See you next time. Hey everybody, if you enjoyed the podcast and you want to help me talk to more people in more places, please consider donating. You can do so on my Patreon as a recurring donor, as well as on my website if you'd rather do a one-time donation. The links are patreon.com slash sebastianweatherby and www.sebastianweatherby.com. Show notes are also available on my website, where you can find citations and comments and other relevant information about the things we talked about today. Thanks again for listening.